teach him to call that real life and don't let him ask what he means by real. And so what he says in, in the book is he's telling him, make sure that your patient just focuses on what is right in front of him in the physical world and nothing else. And don't let him ask any other questions or think about why. And I thought, man, that is so true. And so you start reading the book and you're like, I do that all the time. And I do operate that way. And so it makes you kind of stop and think. It makes you start to do what the Apostle Paul tells us to do in 2 Corinthians, to take each thought captive and really think about why and what you're thinking. And so what Lewis says in the foreword to the book, and I love the way he says it, he says, uh, when we start to think about this idea of, of spiritual warfare and devils and demons and all these kind of things, he says there's two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall when we talk about the devils. One is to believe in their existence or, or one is to disbelieve in their existence. I'm sorry. And the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. You hear what he says? Oftentimes what we do is we either go, yeah, yeah that's not real. And we kind of push it aside. And he says, that's great. If you can get that's that's what in spiritual warfare they want you to do. Or the opposite is you become so obsessed with it that it, it, it overtakes the way you're living and the way you're thinking. And that too is a problem. And so I say that as we start there, and I was thinking about that book this week because uh, most of us, I think, fall into one or more of the, one or the other extreme in this category when we start to talk about it. Today, we're going to look at this passage where Jesus comes upon a man that's possessed by demons. And it tells us this. And here he is, and Jesus comes face to face with this guy. And I think oftentimes when we come to a passage like this, we can kind of skim right over it. I think in our culture, we're probably more on the end of disbelieving it's real. We can easily slide past it. But the other extreme of becoming so obsessed with it's not good either. And so as we look at this text today, I want us to try to land in the center of the biblical tension. What does the Bible say? What does it tell us? about the world we live in and the spiritual realm and what's going on and what Jesus is dealing with here in our text. And so as we do, we're really going to think about this idea of, uh, of demons and spiritual warfare and what's happening in the world around us. And as we do, we're going to look at this text and just ask three questions. First, what's going on here? What's, what's the deal with Jesus and this guy and what's happening? That's the first thing. So what's going on here? Secondly, how does this work? What's happening with this guy and what does this mean and what does spiritual warfare look like? How does that work? And then lastly, how do you defeat evil in your own life, right? So what's going on here? How does it work? How do you defeat evil in your own life? And so just start with the beginning of this story. Jesus, it says, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. That's verse one of chapter five. If you've been with us, we're working our way through Jesus's life in chronological order. And so it says they got out of the boat Last week, we were at the end of Mark 4 as this great storm comes up and they think they're going to die and Jesus stills the storm and the sea. We saw that last week. Two weeks prior and three weeks prior, we were talking about Jesus sitting in that boat and teaching parables on the kingdom of God, right? So he got into the boat to get away from the crowd. He teaches the parables. Then he goes across the sea. They come in this great storm. He stills the sea. Now they've arrived to the other side and he steps out and it says, and as Jesus stepped out of the boat, Immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. And so if you were here last week, I mentioned that that storm and some of the things that we see, that in some ways I believe that that storm as Jesus is crossing the Sea of Galilee was a spiritual attack coming at him, seeking to kill Jesus and his disciples and what they were after. And Jesus just goes, stop. And it stops. 
And now he gets out and he's met with this guy with an unclean spirit. And if you start to read through of what happens, you know, Dan just read it to us. He, he comes face to face with this man. And it says, when he saw Jesus coming from afar, this is verse six, he ran down, ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you, adjure you by God not to torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Whoa, right? This just got real weird, right? Unclean spirit. He comes up. He talks to the guy. What's your name? Well, there's a lot of us is what comes back, right? It's not one. It's a lot. Uh, you get to verse 15 and it says, uh, it talks about this man being demon possessed. Verse 15 and 16 and 18, it says it three different times that he's demon possessed. And so you start to go, well, what is happening here? Right? There's a lot going on in this story. A lot of weird things happening as Jesus steps out and sees this guy. And so if we're asking that question, what's going on here? I want to back up for just a second and kind of sketch a picture of what the Bible talks about of personal evil in the world. We have to have an understanding of what's happening in this moment. Those people that were there and seeing this and witnessing this has a totally different worldview than we do. They're seeing this in a very different way, but we need to put it in its context of what they're seeing, but also in the context of what the Bible says is happening. And so if we go back to the very beginning, what we have, what scripture tells us is that God has created all things. And in his creation that he has created angelic beings. There's not just humans, but there's actually angels in the world that he created There's other created beings that are not humans. And the Bible tells us that God creates these beings before he creates the world. In fact, in Job chapter 38, it says, as God was creating the world, the sons of God, the ones that were there, those angelic realm, they were there rejoicing as God's creating. They're watching it unfold. And so they were created before God creates everything that we see. And so you start to read through the Bible and you start to look at what it says. And what it tells us is of those created beings, these angelic beings, one of them, Lucifer, was one of God's angels who rebelled, who said in his own heart and mind and his thinking that I will be like God. Instead of serving him and being underneath him, I will take that place and I will be like God. And so what it tells us is that Lucifer rebels against God and a third of the angels with him. And God says, you're done. He he removes them from his presence. He casts them out of his presence. And so the Bible tells us that there's this uh, angels that have followed Lucifer and they are now bent on destroying God's good creation. And so when you start to read what the Bible tells us, that these angels we would now refer to as demons, that they are against God and all that is good and they are seeking to destroy him. And so if you read through the Bible, you do what we call a systematic theology. Uh, A good way to think about it is systematic theology is reading across the Bible and looking at everything that it says on a particular subject, right? And so you do systematic study on what the Bible says about angels and demons and what they're like and what's happening. And what you get is that they are bent on destroying God's good creation, that they've rebelled against God and the world he created and they're against him now. And so it tells us things like Satan is active, that there are demons active in the world, that Satan is a liar and a deceiver and a schemer and he seeks to kill and destroy all of God's good creation. And there's a lot of passages that talk about this. And it's the picture of what God gives us of what is going on in the unseen world around us in his creation. And so the Bible tells us this. 
that these demons led by Satan, who himself is a fallen angel, want to destroy God's children, want to destroy his good creation. And so simply put, what the Bible says is there is real personal evil in the world. Now, I want us to think about that in a little different direction for just a second. Not only is there real personal evil in the world, but it comes into contact with us as people. And there's a lot of overlap between the personal evil in the world and our sinfulness, right? And so if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, right? You have God's creation in in 1 and 2, chapter 3. You see the fall of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, in the garden. Maybe you know that famous story. The serpent comes to tempt them. We find out later in the Bible that the the serpent is Satan. And Satan comes onto the scene to tempt them. And that first sin, the original sin, that temptation is the same sin that Satan himself fell into, that I am going to rebel against God and I want to be in control and I want to throw off his authority in my life and I'm going to be like him. And so he comes and he tempts Adam and Eve with the same thing, right? The the temptation is you can eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when you do, you will be like God. And that's the temptation, which if you know the story, they take and they go, yeah, okay, we'll be like God. And they enter into that and sin enters into the world. And so when you think about what happened there, I think uh, J.I. Packer's definition of what happened there is a good one. It's helpful. He says the original sin was lust after self-sufficient knowledge, craving to shake off all external authority that we are created by God and put in his world to know and love him above all else. And we in our sinfulness have decided that we don't need him, that we can do it on our own. Instead of seeing the world revolving around who God is and what he's done, we make it around ourselves. I don't need God. I can do this. Same thing that Satan did as a created being. I don't need God. I can do this. And then he sees the fall of what happens and he says, well, I'm going to seek to destroy God's creation. And so I say that because I want you to see the importance Uh, of how those kind of dovetail together our sinfulness and the original sin and what Satan is seeking to do in his destruction that he's seeking to bring us into that understanding, which we all too willingly follow that we don't need God in the world he created, which is what sin is. And I want you to think for just a second about how insane that idea is just on its face. If there is a good God that has created all things that holds all things together by the power of his word, We exist because he says so. We are held in existence because of who he is by the power of his word. And the idea that we can do this life, we can understand it, we can operate in it without him. It's insanity. That is created finite beings that we don't need the help of the infinite creator in our life. And when you stop and think about it for a second, it's kind of like if you've ever seen a parent that's seeking to let their entire world revolve around a small child and their needs. I mean, not just their needs, but their wants and their desires and everything. Have you ever seen this? I remember being in the airport once and watching a lady with like a two-year-old. And it was like, what do you need, honey? And he'd like throw his bottle. Well, what else do you need? Everything he said, this little kid. And it's like, get this now. She's like, okay. And she's like getting all these things and you're watching it like, what is happening? This kid's two. He doesn't have a clue what he needs, right? Have you ever seen that? Maybe you've fallen into that. You love your kids so much and you want to care for them so much and you give them everything. And all of a sudden you realize, right? That's crazy. 
my, my wife, Joanne, is a pediatrician, and she says she'll regularly have to say, like, you realize you're the parent, and you know better than what they do. You need to guide them in this, right? You think, right, I say that, and you go, that's crazy, and you kind of laugh about it, and you see it. We're the same way when we ignore God times infinite. We're the little kid that doesn't know what we're doing, and I don't need you, and I can do this on my own. That's insane. But that's what the original sin is. It's what the temptation is, that you can make the world all about you. And so the attacks of the enemy are in that realm of you don't need God, you can do this. But that dovetails with our sinfulness. And we start to operate in those ways. And we start to go, oh yeah, that makes sense. I can do it on my own. And so there is real evil, personal evil, active in the world that is seeking to pull you away from God. And that's often what it looks like. But there's this third part about what's going on here that I want us to think about. Say, okay, so there's real evil in the world. That's what the Bible teaches us. It tries to pull us away from God, make it all about us, put it in those terms. But then I want you to understand what the Bible says, and it does say this, and it says it multiple times, that there is real personal evil in the world and that you are coming up against it regularly, whether you know it or not. And so Ephesians chapter 6, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so what the apostle Paul says is that we are waging this war that is going on in our lives and around us at all times where there is real personal evil in the world. And he says, that's where our battle lies. It's not even in against people. It's against spiritual forces. And he terms it that way. And he says, be ready for it and put on the full armor of God and be trusting in him. Because this is a real battle that you're in, whether you recognize it or not. And so there's a constant battle waging in every one of our lives daily. Part of it is within us, our sinful nature, because we have sinned. We've embraced that idea that we can do this life without God, that I can make it all about me. And so that is my sin nature. That's my natural default apart from the saving grace of God in my life. So I have that happening. But then we have from without our culture and what it says and the things that are going on. But we also have real personal evil in the world that is pressing in on us. And all three of those things are true in the Bible. And it tells us that that's the truth. Now, I say all that and I'm aware that we live in 2022 and I say all that and you go, yeah, maybe, right? I don't know about that. Maybe that's what they thought 2000 years ago because they weren't real smart and they don't know what we know and all those kind of things. And that's often what we do. And we start to kind of downplay it. We do exactly what C.S. Lewis is talking about in the foreword of the screw tape letters. There's two equal errors and the first one is to not believe in the existence of these things uh, it, it makes me the 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 old quote i was trying to actually find where it came from i know it from the movie usual suspects that shows how cultured i am but it was before that i found it was from the 1800s but the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was to convince the world he doesn't exist and that's exactly what c.s lewis is talking about in the foreword of this book he even says, that's why I wrote the book, to bring this out into the light that you would see that this is a real thing. And so the first thing that we need to understand here is that there's real personal evil in the world 
And it is coming into contact with your life at different places, whether you recognize it or not. That's the first thing. Second thing, how does that work? What does that look like? And so look at this passage here with me. Verse 2, Jesus had stepped out of the boat. Immediately there he met, sorry, immediately there he met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. And he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with the chain, right? And so it tells us that he meets this guy who's crazy, right? He's pretty intense. He's not wearing clothes. He lives in the tomb. They used to be able to bind him. They can't anymore. He's cutting himself. He's screaming out all the stuff that's going on. If you go and you read, you can actually read this passage or this this story, I should say, in Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 8. Those are the parallel of this. It's told in three of the four Gospels, this story. And if you read in Luke's Gospel in Luke chapter 8, it says in verse 27, For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. And there's something I'm driving out here that I want you to see when we start to think about how does this work? What does this look like? That here's this guy that seems so far gone, the extreme case. And he's cutting himself and he's screaming and he lives in the tombs and they can't bind him. But if you look closely here, it says that they can't, uh, no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Or if you read closely in Luke's gospel, for a long time, he had worn no clothes and not lived in a house. The implication there is he used to live in a house. He used to wear clothes. Even as things started to get bad, they could still bind him. But now it's gotten progressively worse and worse and worse to the point that no one wants to go near him and no one can control him. And so when we start to think about, well, how does this work? It's a gradual process that got worse and worse to get him to this point. And so when you read here, it talks about him being demon possessed, right? 15, 16, verse 18. It says it three different times that he's demon possessed or possessed by a demon. That's a translation. It's an English translation, right? We're reading English Bible. They didn't write this in English. They wrote it in Greek. And so we've got to now take the Greek and go, well, what does that mean in our language and how do we see it? So sometimes we're kind of, we're not guessing, but we've got to make the closest approximation. And so when it says demon possessed, actually in the Greek, it just says, it's a verb. It just says demonized, right? That, that he's been influenced by demons. And when you start to think about what that looks like, I think it's more helpful instead of thinking of demon possession, demon influence. He's become demonized to a point that it now looks like this. There was a point earlier in his life where he still wore clothes and he still lived in a house, but there was still, he was becoming demonized. And then it got worse. And then he stopped wearing clothes. And then it got worse to where he was now needing to be bound with chains. And then it got worse that they couldn't even bind him anymore. And you go, well, how does that happen? How does this work? How do you get to the place where you are with this guy where everything is out of control? There's real personal evil in the world. And our sinfulness is constantly at work in our lives. Even as believers, we say here all the time, we're growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life. There's parts of our lives every day that are not in complete obedience to Jesus. And there's a war waging inside of us between our flesh, that is our old way of thinking, our sinful way of thinking, and our spirit of who we are in Jesus. If you're a Christian, you've put your faith in Jesus, you have a new mode of operation through the spirit in your life, but there's a battle waging. And each day you get up, you have an opportunity to walk in the flesh or to walk in your spirit. Every single one of us. 
And some days we walk in the flesh and we start to do that. And we start to see those things maybe. Or maybe they're really subtle. You don't see that it's your flesh. I'll give you an example. Uh, work is good. I don't know if you've thought about this. Work as God created it was before the fall. Work didn't come as a resultant of our sin. God gave us work to do before the fall. I don't know if you've thought about that, but you see that in Genesis 2. He gives them a work to do. It's a good gift that God gives us. But work becomes distorted because of sin in the world, because of the fall of sin entering into the world. And so you get up and you go do your job. And you're like, I'm going to do my job. I'm going to do it the best of my ability. I want to make a good paycheck to take care of my family. That's a good, good goal. I want to do it the best that I can so that I get uh, a raise maybe, or I get recognition. But then all of a sudden your flesh gets involved. And I want to be really good at my job so that people will pat me on my back and tell me how good I am at my job because that will make me complete as a person. Do you see how subtle that is? It's good to do your work and to do it well. It's good to want to be recognized for those things. It's good to get a raise and to have recognition. But as soon as your identity starts to become your work, you've started to walk in your flesh. Does that make sense? You start to slowly slip over into that. And then you start to go, not only would I like recognition, but I'd like to make more money. Because if I made a lot more money, then I could buy the things that I want. And if I could buy the things that I want, then I'd be really happy. And then everything would be good. And then people would see me in my expensive things and they would think I'm an important person. And do you see how your flesh just starts to slide into that? Instead of making it about who God is and loving people and doing your work for the good of those around you and taking care of your family and these good ideas, suddenly it's all about your identity. And the more you start to work or or walk in your flesh, the more you make it about those things, the more that you're now walking on the enemy's ground. Does that make sense? The more I start to think that way, I'm really important because of what I do. No. Because of who you are, because God made you in his image and you know the creator of the universe and you love him and you know him. That's why you're who you are. And that's what's most important. But suddenly it becomes about your job and it becomes about what you do. And then all of a sudden, the lies of the enemy make a lot more sense. Does that make sense? Do you see what I mean? As soon as I start to go, yes, and I need more money and I need this. And then suddenly my thinking shifts and I'm walking in my flesh. And I said at the beginning, the dovetail of the enemy and what Satan's original rebellion was and our sins start to come together and you open yourself up to suggestion. It's not just demonic forces, although they are real and they are active in the world. It's also our culture, which is influenced by these things as well. And you start to get a steady flow of that. And suddenly things that were absolute lies that you know is lies by God's word suddenly seem really reasonable. And you start to move into that. And then a little more. And then a little more. And I think that's what happened with this guy. Over and over, he gave more and more of himself to the things that are anti to what God is. And he started to become more and more demonized. More and more under the control of personal evil in his life until the point that he is an absolute wreck. Until he's what you see here with Jesus interacting with him. What we see here full blown didn't happen overnight. And I want you to think about why I say that. I think it's the implication here just in it happening little by little. But Paul says this real clear in in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
In first Timothy, he's writing a letter to a young pastor, Timothy, and he's encouraging him in his ministry and what it looks like and how to make disciples and how to put leaders into place and all these things that he's telling him to do within his local church. But one of the things that he says to Timothy in the middle is he says, don't make a new believer in a place of leadership. Don't take someone that just became a believer and put them in the place of leading everyone and being over. And he says, there's a reason why. Because if you do so, what happens is they get puffed up with conceit. They get real proud, right? They're, they're spiritually immature and they can't take that place. And then what he says is, and as they get puffed up with conceit, they fall into the condemnation of the devil. He says they open themselves up to suggestion. They open themselves up because they're now walking on the enemy's territory. And that's going to start to take effect in their life. You understand what he's saying? The more that we walk in our flesh, the more that we're open to those things. And so it's a process that gradually starts to happen over time, little by little. Suddenly things that you knew that God says and you hold fast to, suddenly you're like, oh, it's not so bad. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. I'll give you an example. Really sad example from just a couple years ago. Very famous Christian apologist that passed away a couple years ago and he died. And after he died, it was like this celebration of his life and his ministry. And then a few months later, it came out that there were all sorts of allegations of sexual sin. They're like, Oh, I remember just reading it and being saddened by the fact. And so what happened is the ministry that he started and he put together said, well, we need to take these allegations seriously. And so we're going to do kind of a deep dive. We're going to hire an outside firm and they're going to do all this stuff to research it. And they did. And after like eight months or however long it took, they came out with this report and they said some of these things are true. There was sexual sin in his life that he was hiding it from his family and his ministry that he was keeping all these different things that he'd put in place to make sure that nobody knew. But here's the thing that stuck out to me when I read that report. Got down, it was talking about him having affairs in different places. And he said to one of the ladies, her quote was that he had had this affair with, that he called her his reward for living a life of service to God. And I read that and thought, that's what demonization looks like. It's what happens when you start to walk in your flesh And you start to suddenly move over and move over and move over that all of a sudden that sounds like a good idea. Something that is blatantly sin. Something that I bet if you ask this guy 20 years prior, is this something that's permissible as a believer? He would have said, no way. But it's not until you start to move into that realm and you make those steps and you make those steps, then suddenly your sinful thinking, that makes sense. That's what demonization looks like. That's what spiritual attack looks like in your life. It's not you lay down one night and you get up the next day and you're possessed by demons that are controlling you. It's step by step of making decisions that you're going to ignore what the truth of God's word says and I'm going to live in these other ways. And then all of a sudden, the, the, the lies that come, the temptations that they're, well, that kind of makes sense. It's not that big of a deal. And it starts to compound over and over. And so your flesh with these attacks and what the Bible tells us is they're real. That there's real personal evil in the world. And that it is seeking to destroy you. That's why God says uh, to 
uh, Abel, Cain and Abel in that story at the very beginning. I'm sorry, he says to Cain that sin is, is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you. It wants to destroy you. God warns him. He says, trust me and do your best and follow me and I got you. And it's so easy to slip into that kind of thinking. And so when we start to think about how does this work, how do you get to this guy in this extreme? And it's little by little. It's walking in the flesh. It's giving in to those things. It's the flesh. It's the attacks. It's the attack of the world. And that leads to this downward spiral where you become more and more demonized. More and more susceptible to those things. Now, objection that comes in this a lot of times. You read this story and you read this thing about this guy. And maybe you read this. Maybe you heard Dan read this to you. And he's out there cutting himself and he's crying and he's running around naked in the tombs and he's doing all these things. And you go, well, this guy's just mentally ill, is he not? Right? Maybe you think that. You read that and you go, well, it sounds like he's just crazy. How do we know that this guy's not just a schizophrenic? He's undiagnosed and he's had all this stuff and it's gotten worse in his life and he's just a disaster. It's a mess now. And you could say that and go, well, couldn't that be? Sometimes people make that objection against the Bible. They say, well, that was written 2000 years ago and they don't know what we know and they couldn't understand and they didn't have the, the, all the research that we have now. And so it's probably just a schizophrenic that was undiagnosed and he needed help. But here's the thing. The Bible doesn't give you that. In Matthew chapter four, it's in verse 24. It says they brought to him the ill, the demon possessed, the lunatics and the paralyzed. And it gives you these categories, uses a different word for each one. And it says Jesus was healing them all. But here's the thing. In the Bible, it differentiates between mental illness and demonic possession. Against what is psychological and what is physical and what is demonic. And it gives you these different categories and ways to think about it. And the Bible is is nuanced enough to differentiate between all of those. And it says all these people were being brought to Jesus and he was healing every one of them. And so I want you to think about this because sometimes when we get into talking about these things, there's common errors in the way we go. One is we make everything a demon, right? We do what C.S. Lewis says. We fixate on, on it and we make everything spiritual, right? Someone has a mental illness. They have a chemical imbalance in their brain and we go, it's a demon and they need prayer and they need fasting and that's what it needs. Maybe part of it. But there's also physical issues that go on. The same with psychological. All of these different ways. Or we do the other extreme. And we go, there's no such thing as demonic possession. And that's crazy. And it's schizophrenia. And they just need this medicine or this diagnosis. But what the Bible says is it's all of the above. And I want you to think about this for just a second. If Satan and his demons are out to kill, seek, destroy to manipulate, to lie, to do anything they can to destroy God's good creation, where are they going to attack the most? They're going to attack in the areas where there's already struggles. And so someone who has mental issues, that's going to be the point of attack. Someone who has physiology going on, there's uh, sickness in their body, I'm going to attack there. The person who's struggling with forgiveness of sin, I'm going to attack their conscience constantly. That's going to be the area if you're seeking to destroy. And so it's not easy to say it's this or it's that. It's all of those things. And they're all working together in different ways. And that's what the Bible tells us. 
It's very nuanced in the way that it looks at it. And so be very careful that we don't go to one extreme or the other, but we hold what the Bible actually tells us. Real personal evil in the world exists and it's attacking and there's a struggle going on. But your flesh is part of that. The bombardment of what the world says is part of that. The, the diseases that are in the world that are a result of sin is part of that. And it's all those places working together that leads to this. Now, last part. You see this guy. He's the extreme case. What happens? Look at verse 6. When he saw Jesus coming from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. And so he gave them permission And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank of the sea, into the sea and drowned in the sea. And I want to just stop there for a second. When you read this and you start to go, well, there's real personal evil in the world. You're going to come into contact with. It's going to seek to destroy you. But what I want you to see when we start to talk about how do you defeat this in your life, understand what happens here. The most extreme of cases, a guy with a legion of demons comes up and what happens when he sees Jesus? He trembles. He knows who he is. Even the demons know that Jesus is Lord over all. And they see him and they go, what are you going to do to us? What would you have to do with us, Jesus? And they tremble at his name. And so it is real. And it's in your life. And there are things that are pressing in that are seeking to destroy you that are seeking to tempt you, that are seeking you to choose to move away from God and what he has for you in your life. But please hear this. Jesus is Lord over all of it. And so when C.S. Lewis says we can make the two extremes, we can deny its existence or we can become obsessed with it, right? Fearful and speculation and all these kind of things. He says, no, 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 that's not who Jesus is. Yes, it's real. And yes, there's personal evil, but Jesus is Lord over all of it. And the biblical center is to understand that it's there, but also to know that Jesus is Lord over every bit of it. And so I want you to think about practical application of what that looks like in your own life. And there's two things. One, there are going to be texts in your life. And as I say, as you walk in your flesh, you're making yourselves more susceptible to those things. The more that you walk away from who God is and the more you get your thinking outside of the way God has told us what is true, the more susceptible you are to those things. And so real personal evil in your life is going to be best defeated by trusting what God tells you. Walking closely with him in all things, right? Go back to the original sin, Adam and Eve. God says you can eat of everything, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You don't want that. You don't want the knowledge of good and evil. Trust me. And if they would trust God, they would live under his protection. And they go, no, I think we can do this on our own. And it's the same thing in our life. When we walk in our flesh and we don't trust what God tells us, it opens us up to all sorts of things. And suddenly those those temptations and those pressures and the things that come. And so the first part I would say to you is trust him. 
Trust what he tells you. Abide in his word. Right? He's got you in that. And so trust him in all things. But then the second thing, and this is real important. I remember hearing, uh, it was in seminary in a chapel once. And I remember um, the chapel speaker, I don't remember who it was, but he said he was talking about spiritual warfare and temptation and what it looks like. And he says, what the, what the devil says, what Satan says, what demons say, it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. It doesn't matter. God just doesn't want you to have fun. He doesn't want you to enjoy these things. It's not a big deal. And he said, so then you do it. You sin. You ignore God and the world he's created. And then it's suddenly they'll change on a dime and say, you can never be forgiven for that. What were you thinking? You are evil and wretched and disgusting and God will never forgive you and he will never love you. And that's the attack of the enemy. But please hear this. There are times in our lives when we step into our flesh and we follow our flesh. We don't follow the things that God tells us and we do sin. But please hear the truth of God's word. Colossians chapter 2, Paul writing, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Do you hear what he says? The only power that the enemy has is to call you a sinner. You are a sinner. It's to accuse you. But in Jesus, he has taken all of your sin and he's paid for it and he's nailed it to the cross and it's been brought to nothing. And so when you sin and then the enemy comes, you can never be forgiven for that. You turn and you say, no, Jesus has done it for me. The power of the cross triumphs over the lies of the enemy. And there's nothing they can do. Nothing can stand against God's. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so have your eyes open to the reality of the world. There is real personal evil. But know that Jesus has defeated it and you can trust him in all things. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. That you have done for us what we could never ever do for ourselves. And for that we thank you. We pray that you would help us to see that afresh today. We do pray that you would give us eyes to see the world as it is. That you would help us to trust what your word says, even when our world says that's crazy and that doesn't make sense. I pray that you would help us to trust in you and what you've told us, that we would be aware of the reality of the world. But I pray, too, that you would remind us that you are Lord over all, that we would not fall into speculation and fear over things that we don't have to be afraid of that you are Lord over all, that you are good, that you have brought our sin to nothing in Jesus. And we pray that we would see that afresh today, trusting you more and more, moment by moment, that we would walk in, in complete obedience to you. We can't do that except for the power of your spirit. And so we pray that you would continue to bring us from one degree of glory to another. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious